Hi, everyone, and welcome to our Extraordinary Manifestations of Death and Their Possible Interpretations podcast. We're here today with myself, Micah, Deborah, Chelsea, and Dusa. All of us have different topics, and so we'll all be exploring a different part of death and their manifestations and their possible interpretations. I'll start off the podcast by talking about Buddhist mummification. Afterwards, Deborah will start talking about the rainbow body. Chelsea will later talk about relics in Buddhism, and Duza is going to be talking about talking about death in the lens of the Yogacara Buddhism. We hope you enjoy, and let's get started on the Buddhist, Buddhist mummification. So today I'll be starting off our podcast by talking about Buddhist mummification. I hope everyone is familiar with the topic of Buddhist mummification, but I will also go into detail about what it in- entails. In this podcast, I will claim that the mummies have su- having supposedly resulted from the death of Huaining, also known as the Sixth Patriarch, and Master Kaishan, served as the focus for a Buddhist belief system, assuming that virtuous individuals would necessarily produce exceptional bodily remains, which become worshipped objects. Yet, mummies and the various meanings assigned to these sin- sanctified entities constitute only one fa- facet of the production of exceptional remains. So let's get into what Buddhist mummification actually entails. There's a variety of terms that have been used over over the years to describe Buddhist mummification. A very a very popular term to use are flesh body but bodhisattvas. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. And another word I think it comes from the Japanese language are sokun shinbutsu. Um, entering mummification whilst being still alive is a point to reach enlightenment and become a oneness with God. It is also said to be a way to cheat death and meditate forever, which a lot of Buddhist believers believe to be a very good thing. Buddhist mummification doesn't just happen overnight. It's a very intense um, intense process, which includes a strict diet before dying, months or years, the, the, in order to preserve the body. This is oftentimes done by eating only things from the mountain or going on a strict diet by only eating a certain amount of fruits or plants or other often natural things in order to make sure that the body can preserve itself after death. Um, just following this diet, uh, uh, on the other hand, just following this diet does not mean that the mummification will be successful. The rate of successful mummification is very, very low as your body... Um, responding to diet and actually disintegrate in that way after death, it's it's very rare for it actually to be successful. Therefore, when mummification is actually successful, it often leads to enshrinement, and it means that the mummies that are successful are often believed to be um, holy spirits as they are enshrined and looked da- looked up upon. However, if the enshrinement is unsuccessful, it often leads to burial in order to still hope that these people get a good life after death by being buried. An interesting case of Buddhist mummification that is still very, is a very interesting topic to this day is the case of the sixth patriarch, also known as the the, the Buddhist Huaining, Huaining, um, who lived from 638 till 713. He is one of the, he, he can be said to be the first Buddhist mummy that, that, that is to exist. However, the interesting thing about 
his case is that no one actually knows if he intended to be a mummy and how he did it. There's not much information known about his process of becoming a mummy. Not There's not very much detail, as it was a very long time ago, there's not very much detail about how he died or how he preserved his body or how he prepared. The only thing that people know is that he's the first mummy that they found and he's the oldest one of he's believed to be one of the oldest buddhist mummies that is preserved to this day to this day he's still being enshrined in a yellow robe and a red shawl in in the nanhua monastery in the guangdong province in china he is a big figure in the in the buddhist religion as his body preserved itself and that is seen as a very big thing, suggesting that he is a virtuous individual. But there are many instances of mummification all over the world. A lot of mummification is written about in Japan, but it has also happened uh, locally here in Taiwan. In Taiwan, the term for Buddhist mummy is often Rushin Pusha, which translates to flesh body bodhisattva. Um, the first two monks that that are known to have their bodies actually mummified successfully for Qi Hung and Qing Yang. Overall, there are six main Buddhist mummies that are known in Taiwan, which are five of them are nuns, five of them are monks, and one of them is a nun. But an example I'd like to talk about is the case of Master Kai Shan. He is located in the Geishan Lingyun Temple in Taoyuan, not too far from Taipei City. He passed in 1998 and... He information is known about his death, which is the difference between him and um, the sixth patriarch, because he it is openly known that he prepared his body by eating porridge water and drinking salty root beer for months before passing. To this day, Master Kaishan sits in the middle of the temple of the Guishan Lincoln Temple, and he is enshrined with a gold and red plating. The interesting thing about his body is that. He he mummified himself for 10 years and there was no balm or chemicals used and the body was still intact. This is a very good symbol in the Buddhist belief as it shows that he's a virtuous individual who did not even need any outside help in order to become a mummy, suggesting his, um, suggesting his legitimacy as a, as a Buddhist monk. I believe it's interesting to p- compare the deaths of... Um, the Sixth Patriarch, Huineng, and Master Kaishan, as they have both become worshipped objects, but they come from very, very different time periods. Obviously, about the death of Huineng, less is known. It was a very, very long time ago, and people can imagine that the, that the uh, ritual of becoming a Buddhist mummy was not uh, perfected yet, because even in research it shows that months later, uh, not months, years later in Japan, the Buddhist mummification method was still being perfected as they were unsure how to preserve a body in the best way. Therefore, um, it can be questions whether the the mummy of Huineng was uh, a coincidence or was done on purpose. Sadly, it, it is hard to confirm this because um, not much is written about how his death happened. So we don't actually know if his death in this manner and becoming a mummy, if that was on purpose or it was a coincidence, it's it's hard to determine. However, if you look at the case of Master Kaishan, it was definitely done on purpose. He knew he wanted to die this way. He knew he wanted to become a mummy. 
Therefore, he prepared his body for months before dying, maybe even years. Um, and it's not an it's not an easy process because they these individuals they eat very very little in order to become a Buddhist mummy, and they basically dry their body out from the inside out, which is very a very very painful process. So they must be very very dedicated. So Meister Kaishan um, definitely sacri- well not sacrificed his life. He knew he was dying, but he definitely sacrificed his last life quality in order to obtain his last wish of becoming a Buddhist mum- mummy. It is interesting to compare the two cases, though, because both of them are currently worshipped objects, but it is unclear if they were if this is done for the same purpose. It is a fact that both of them are still enshrined to this day, and both their bodies are, bodies are still intact, and therefore they are worshipped very heavily. Um, it is it, it can be questioned whether. Um, these mummies deserve as much praise as they get, but it is certain that it is a very extraordinary manifestation of death for their bodies to still be preserved and have the effects on other Buddhist believers as they have to this day. All in all, Buddhist mummification is an interesting topic that deserves a lot more attention due to us mysteries in how the bodies are able to preserve themselves, but also the mysteries in what does it actually mean when a body is able to preserve itself? And does it deserve the worship that they get? Now the floor is going to be taken by Deborah, who's going to be talking about uh, the rainbow body. And this will be followed by Dusa and Debbie talking about their about their topics. Enjoy. Okay. Hello, I'm Deborah. Right now, uh, we have Chelsea and Dusa here with me to discuss the next topic. And they will also be sharing their research in the upcoming sessions. So now that Micah has shared with us some very fascinating details of Buddha's mummification, for my part, I will be talking about yet another extraordinary manifestation of death in the Buddhist tradition, which is the rainbow body phenomenon. So before we begin, are you guys familiar with this topic? Hmm, not really. <laughs> hmm. hmm, not really. Maybe no, okay. that's true. Sure. So generally speaking, the rainbow body refers to a form of transcendental death. It is known as the highest form of realization in the Dzogchen school of Buddhism, mm-hmm. which is mainly practiced by Tibetan monks. Um, the rainbow body is visible during the transformation of the practitioner's physical body into rainbow-colored lights. The ways of mm-hmm. its manifestation vary from case to case, but one of the most uh, common phenomenon is the shrinking or complete disappearance of the physical body while at the same time, rainbows or colorful clouds appear in the sky directly above. It is a long tradition passed down by the great master Padmasambhava, dating back to the 8th century. And in fact, it is said that over 160,000 cases of rainbow body have been documented so far. Can you imagine? (laughs) I've never expected, yeah, I've never expected such a high number of cases. Mm. Okay, so the rest of my talk can be roughly divided into three main parts. First, I will begin by stating my thesis statement. And next, I will go through my chosen material to summarize the discourse. Then finally, I'll attempt to present my argument. So here goes my thesis statement. Relying on Francis Tissot's 
research on the rainbow body allegedly produced by Kempo Acho. I claim that his rep his presentation of the of it as a manifestation of the su subtle body highlights unexplored commonalities between descriptions found in Catholicism and in Tibetan Buddhism, thereby opening up the possibility that similar occurrences may exist in other belief systems. Um, before I go into the details, what do you think of this claim? Are there any feedback or thoughts? Mm, I think it's quite possible, yeah. Interesting. Mm. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so now I will begin by briefly introducing the background of Father Francis Tissot and summarize his study on the case of Campo Acho. Um, Francis Tissot is a Catholic priest, scholar, and writer who is interested in Tibetan Buddhism. He has led several research expeditions in Asia and he teaches. Christian theology, history of religions, spirituality, and interreligious dialogue. For my research, I chose to look into one of his most recent books published in uh, 2016. The full title of the book goes, Rainbow Body and Resurrection, Spiritual Attainment, the Dissolution of Material Body, and the Case of Kempo Acho. So in a nutshell, Tiso actually decided to study Kempo Acho's rainbow body attainment as an attempt to find explanations to elucidate his own Catholic beliefs towards the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Anyways, just to quickly summarize the case of Kempo Acho, um, he was a Buddhist monk who died in Eastern Tibet in 1998. The rainbow body produced by Kempo Acho was witnessed by his relatives, disciples, and many of the locals. In fact, Tissot came to interview them in the year 2000, which was only two years after the event. They claimed that dozens of rainbows were visible in the sky at the time of Kempo Acho's death. His physical body was also not noticeably shrinking, and in about eight days, they found that none of his body remained. He simply disappeared in a locked room. Mm. Well, indeed, some may be skeptical towards these accounts, which is why Tissot begins his book by acknowledging that there are difficulties in conducting scientific investigations on such cases that rely mostly on the words of faithful eyewitnesses. So he chose to present his research on Kempo Acho in the form of a series of fieldwork journals. With this, Tissot goes on to explore the body as a vehicle of spiritual transformation and finds a grounding for his interreligious approach, which seeks to bridge the gap between Catholic beliefs and Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, what do you guys think of his approach? I find it quite radical, especially in his field of profession. Hmm. Yes, like um, I, I have a question to, to raise Mm -hmm. right here it's like um what what did he say about the christianity about like the approach about this mm. oh yeah. um okay so he actually once um tiso actually admitted that the bodies in the bodies of christian saints they tend to prefer incorruption instead of like trans transcendence um so that the body does not oh. decay after death 
Mm. Yeah. There are actually some accounts of mummification in Christianity too. <laughs> like the um, Buddhist mummification. Mm. But there are also um, many stories of bodily transcendence that can be found in the Bible. And it is known in the West as the light body. Mm. Mm. Okay. Um, uh, but nevertheless, uh, Tissot's research brings attention to the unexplored commonalities between Catholicism and Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, he complicates the relationship between two sets of very different spiritual beliefs and finds interesting connections between them, which opens up the possibility that similar occurrences may exist in other belief systems too. Mm. In fact, yeah, the concept of a body of light has actually been around for a very long time, uh, prevalent in many religions and philosophical ideals across the world, such as uh, Taoist alchemy, Hindu yoga, uh, Catholic Christian beliefs, as we have discussed today, and even in Platonic philosophy since ancient Greece, or theosophy and modern New Age thinking. Um, I believe there are a lot more to the list that are waiting for us to explore in further research. But uh, I guess now that my time is up, I will be leaving the floor to Chelsea. Uh, she is going to introduce to us another form of Buddhist relics, the Shariras. All right. Thank you, Debbie, for <laughs> such an interesting topic about the rainbow bodies. All right, so uh, having examined mummies and rainbow bodies, we now turn our attention to another form of relics. So relics usually means uh, leave behind or abandoned in Latin word. They often refers to the remaining pieces from the cremation residues of sacred saints or venerated people in different religions. So in most of the religions, Buddha, Muhammad, uh, Jesus, they all had human bodies. They all died. Mm. And so their mm. physical remains have been held uh, worthy and been worshipped by their followers. So the physical remains are often referring to skull, um, bone fragments, tooth, hair, and so on. So all of this seems usual as we know that they sound reasonable to us. But one thing that appears to be mysterious preserved in Buddhism which is the pearl-like beads that appear after the death of Buddhist teachers or gurus. So mm. today, I'm going to walk you through the window of um, Bodhi relics, uh, which is Sariras. It means uh, body in Sanskrit. So focusing on the jewel-like remains produced by uh, the cremation process, we claim that these relics um, venerated throughout Buddhist history and worship in Tibetan Buddhism as physical proof, indicating various levels of accomplishment. They are the object of a particular post-mortem ranking system, whereby they get evaluated and classified according to practitioners' degree of realization to the merit supposedly accumulated during their lifetime. Nevertheless, uh, scientific analysis of this sariras suggests that other factors, 
such as the cremation temperature, may also play a role in the emergence mm. of these unusual remains. So in the following discussion, under the lens of Tibetan Buddhism, we are going to talk about what is relics, how does it form, and what is the significance and meaning of this miraculous um, object. So, in Tibetan Buddhism, this branch of Buddhists have always had a firm conviction in cults of relics. They often see it as a manifestation of the metaphysical truth or reality body. We call it like a Dharmakaya. And secondly, um, it acts like a physical object deserving to be venerated. So they believe that all these strange beads are seen as the final distillation of a Buddhist well, a life well lived. Also, mm. like a physical manifestation of uh, piety or, or devotion. And mm. Sariras, they often refer to the enlightenment in Buddhism, which is body, uh, the awakening. intellect and the vimukti it's a release from fetters how do you think guys mm, sorry um the connection is kind of poor can you sort of repeat that again i'm sorry so i was yeah i was asking like how do you think mm. that sariras can refer to the enlightenment of buddhism mm, i do think it might be a, yeah, yeah. Maybe there are some sort of a physical manifestation. Yeah. Yes. Mm, okay. Yeah. So, what about Debbie? Mm, um, I was just wondering um, how the Buddhists themselves uh, come to uh, see the phenomenon of Sharira. Okay. Mm. Well, like... Um, they, they see it as a, a religious significance from the past uh -huh. in, in Buddhism. Because um, in, in Buddhism, there are three major classification of things uh, worthy uh -huh. to be worshipped. One is body, the other one is speech, and the third one is mind of the Buddha. So uh, the relics, the shariras, is, is referring to the body receptacles, um, which is the image of the Buddhas or the saints. Yeah. Oh, I see. Yep. <laughs> yeah, so, so they... they I, I, sorry, I have another question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, go on. So um, the Sharira is corresponding to the Dharmakaya that you just mentioned in the Buddhism? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, because uh, like, like, like the whole object, it, it means like a, a body remains um, produced by the saint. Mm. And... They, they believe it's like a, the gift from from the, the teachers, the Buddhist teachers. Yeah, they, mm -hmm. they leave um, deliberately behind of these images for their worshippers to be venerated. Yeah. So it's a, yeah, because, uh, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, it's a symptom. It's a symptom of uh, someone who attained Dharmakaya or is the, the, the relic itself yes. contains contains it i guess um the relics it's uh somehow um it's a sign of the sainthood because uh i i i don't think like different levels of enlightenment affect the colors or the the, the outcome of the sariras but 
I think somehow now if we turn back to Ningma Tantra, um, mm. it 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 states inside when um, the clear mind asks about the sign of sainthoods to Buddha. So he, he answered that um, it's significant. Uh, it, it signifies the previous cultivation um, huh. of a certain person. For example, if you have reached a, a certain level of enlightenment, it, you can have um, a certain abilities in attaining such cultivation. For example, like um, the unharmed in a fire to walk uh, without mm. sinking, or mm. if even higher, it's like you can. Um, develop yogis as uh, preludes the uh, dissolution of the physical body into rainbow, like um, what mm-hmm. Debbie have brought us mm. in our last topic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so for relics, it's also it's a lens of um, the sign of saintly dead. That because when a, a saint when a saint die, they believe it comes into uh, three parts. The first part is like the image left behind the cremation. For example, um, the person would, would produce like a peaceful, a wrathful image after attaining liberation. The second mm. one is lights. Lights are mm. like, um, maybe lights would be encircled and rise up around the corpse or the house that the body lies. Or they say like um, there are some lights shines from the ribs and they have a mysterious sound. And the last mm. one is about bones because bones uh, will be produced after uh, being being cremated or being burned. So they believe mm. that um, the the sariras are um, purposely left by the consciousness of a master by veneration, and the mm. beauty of the sariras depend on how well the masters had cultivated um, their mind and soul. And they come in uh, different variety of colors. Some are even translucent. So mm. if we look on the substances from different kind of relics, uh, uh, they are categorized into five different colors. According and, and and the five different colors are actually related to the human organs. So for example, mm. yeah, the white. Color we we call it shariram. It's the, the tata gata type, and it often appears in white uh, white color. And it's believed that uh, they are formed in fat and developed from bone marrow. Um, the other one is shariram. It's blue, green, and darkish, and they believe it's um, emerged from the digestive system, which is a vajra type in tata gatas and. Next one is chiriram. It's yellow and it's related with the liver. And we have um, um, red colors too from the kidneys and sapphire blue, which represents the essence of knowledges because it occurs in the lungs. The nyariram type, which is a blue color type, it's it's um, quite uh, rare because I guess um, it's 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 the highest level of um, attaining the enlightenment so all of the all of the relics are usually about the size of a mustard seed besides um, the tatagata type which is the body type is um, around a, a size of pea and um, if we go back to the relationship between sariras in different colors with five tatagatas 
um, I would say it's about like um, so you were mentioning the the sapphire blue charira and then yeah um, yeah yeah so like this the sapphire uh, the yeah the sapphire blue charira is a karma type of um, um, relics in in uh, the perception of the precept class of the Ati Yoga vehicle. So mm. in the text, it refers to um, the Dukkha. It's like the, it's it's one beyond the otherwise endless cycle of rebirth and death, which is mm. associated with um, Dharmakaya in different sutras. Okay. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So like why Sarah is so important. It's like they stand a religious significance from the past in Buddhism. And the other one, it's like they, they act like an evidence of deep realization as a holy being. For example, like it is believed that Buddha relics have been separated into eight pieces and brought into different parts of the world. Um, mm. So in April of 1998, uh, one of the relics was brought from India to Taiwan and it is now enshrined in Jade Buddha Shrine in Fuguangshan Buddha Museum. So mm -hmm. there's another example, which is like, um, there's a sutra and tantra teaching uh, teacher from the Kopan Monastery um, from Nepal Buddhist Mahayana Center. His name is um, Geshe Lama Konchok. So he left some remains upon death, such as a pearl-like relics, black hair, a tooth changed into conch shell shape. And, and most of the relics are now part of the Maitreya relic tour and the Jade Buddha relic tour, bringing blessings to thousands of peoples. So believers think that they are the gift from the saints depends on on the receptivity of the individual and depending on the purity of the keeper's thoughts, they have known to be mysteriously multiply, grow, or decrease in size while um, inside their containers. So mm. the Sariras is, uh, are said to be like heal and uh, purify the body of the keepers. Oh. Now, interestingly, like you might ask a question, like, uh, can everyone leave behind sariras, or mm -hmm. uh, can they produce by common living beings? So, mm -hmm. sariras might not be only limited to humans or masters. Um, there was also a Korean monk, Myojong, receive a sarira from a turtle, which caused others to treat <laughs> the monk better. Yeah, mm -hmm. <laughs> and you might be skeptical about the cremation process that links to the formation of relics. I mean, could it be certain diet that causes the sedimentation in different organs? What do you guys think so? Um, I once once heard and um, sharira might be the kidney stones like we congested in our body like after cremation, maybe under a certain uh, high temperature and they become a sharira. But um, I read a recent re research. I I cannot re I recall. They said um, the the kidney stones and all the uh, stones we produce in the body could not stand for such high temperature uh, when in cremation. So I think that serves a, a kind yes. of um right a, a, a 
evidence for your um, theory and this topic. Yeah, because like usually Sariras was produced after um, the the cremation, so they they found it true like the dusty ashes. So you know like. They, they, they were in a high temperature. So in the study um, conducted by Holden from Monash University in 1994, uh, he shows that um, human or femoral bones could reach recrystallization under different heats, for example, like 700 to uh, 1,000 degrees Celsius, depending on different ages of the bone. And most of the bone cells have merged into a larger crystal so infused together in a spherical way. So maybe like uh, I would think like the, the gallstone or the kidney stone that you mentioned just now mm-hmm. might be like um, uh, a, a merge between like like um, the bone, the crys- the recrystallized bone, and the collagen. The collagen, yeah. yeah. So um, hereby I suggest like that. Maybe it's like a combination of the non-mineralized collagen that maps into gelatin, and also cereals could be the combination of both of them. Yeah. Mm. Mm. I'm just out of curiosity. Uh, has any scientific uh, research done like to examine these relics of Sharira under any like um, equipments, like X-ray, like to examine the components to see what's there uh, so special about it? Oh, thank you for for raising this. This is also, um, I've always have this question in my mind too, because uh, I've been I've been searching for um, research like this, but I didn't find much, unfortunately. And I was thinking it was because like they they see this as a really sainthood um, remain, so they didn't want to like really cut it to examine the. Mm. the whole the mm. whole um products because um if you if you really would like to look into um certain kind of um um of the constituents of the or the composition of the the beads you you might need to destroy the whole sample yeah mm. Mm. yep so yeah i was also thinking like um are they, are they are they really truly existing? I mean, the the, the paradox um, between the nature of relics are are still over there, and I guess the natural science perspective have brought us into a different paradigm in judging the human purse in the sense of duality of two views of dharma, which are the perfection of um, the Buddha's teaching and the discrimination between the intention of the um, wishfulling jewel worship practice. I mean, people mm. worship this because um, it's important mm. in their religious practice. They see it as a uh, evidence, but um, it's uh, really yeah. existing. Mm. Yep. Oh. So what are the implications of these extraordinary manifestations and how should we interpret them from a broader perspective? We're going to let um, Dusa to explain us more about this. Okay, so I guess it's my turn. And um, thank you, Chelsea, for your um, very um, interesting presentation. And then I will now try to give a, a possible um, explanation and interpretation under 
yoga chara buddhism uh, um their viewpoint and see how this could be possible under under the, their philosophy so i would like to begin with um when we see this um extraordinary um manifestation of physical bodies we tend to see them as extraordinary because we normally um look at it in a, a materialist viewpoint and uh and a realist viewpoint what does that mean is that we think our body is um real and the, the physical aspect comes first then there is the mental aspect of the body we think our mentality somehow like are stored inside this physical body so like physical comes first and then there is the mind and the consciousness that's normally how this the scientific um dogmatic uh, dogmatic view um that influences mm. us uh, nowadays in the modern society right so that's why when when we tend to think um like the rainbow body and the shariras um normally uh, people would label them under like kind of superstitious and kind of like spooky right like that's why we call them like extraordinaries but mm. however i think the the importance uh what the uh, yoga chara could uh, provide is the um yoga chara buddhism is a a form of anti-realism so it's belong it belongs to the mahayana buddhism which uh, developed uh, developed after um um the apitarma buddhism so yoga chara and madhyamaka are the two main uh, philosophical school in uh, mahayana buddhism and then um but what yoga chara suggests uh, which is also their main philosophy is that the world we experience the physical world the the existent uh, the external um are not uh, literally and not, are not physically real they are just like the the world we experience um like the one we have in dreams but there are some uh, conditions mm. different to different to um the the world we experience in dreams and the world we experience as so-called reality right now that we are experiencing so um the um so i want to suggest that the um, these uh, extraordinary um manifestation of the bodies are definitely possible uh when view under the lens of yoga chara buddhism why is that um because i would like to um begin with um my thesis statement which goes okay. i claim that um when view when death when viewed um, through the lens of vasubandhu's main treaties um the death proves to be ultimately unreal and in the sense it is in the sense the physical body does not have any real existence so while the idea of the self proves proves to be constructed consequently it demise eventually correspondence to the dissolution of this mental construct so vasubandhu and asanga are the founder of yoga chara buddhism he um claims that the the world we experience are not ultimately real um the 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 things we call experience from this external world are just all impressions so it's the same as the one in the dream but the the world we experience are under 
um, the influence of karma. And we all share the same karma, right? So that's why like, I can influence you and you can influence me because um, we are bound in one domain of um, karma. And, mm-hmm. and so also in the ultimate sense, they, um, they emphasize this point in, in, um, in Vasubandhu and Asanga's philosophy. Um, the treatise I base on is uh, Vimsika and Trimsika. It's um, 20 verses by uh, Vasubandhu and uh, 30 verses um, by, by him also. And the one thing that he emphasized um, in the treatise is that the ignorance um, that produce the world the, that that produce our uh, existence are actually the differentiation between what is me and others. So, like in the very ultimate sense, the death is not real. Like it's not literally real. It's just like the self uh, when we uh, experience as me and as others. Like I perceive this physical identity as oneself and I perceive you the the person who's listening to me speaking it's another person in the ultimate sense if we erase this um roots um ignorance then there is no differentiation between what is me and others so we are only Mm. we are joined together in this uh, universal consciousness and also they claim um the world, like you and me, and the all like physical aspect of the world, um, like our body, are produced by uh, Alaya Vignana. So, if we see the world and we see death, and if we if we see our physical body under this um, philosophy that it's actually the consciousness comes first and then the material comes later, it's like totally opposite from the uh, materialist standpoint. And then these uh, extraordinary manifestation could definitely be real um, because our mentality could definitely um, influence our physical aspect because it's our mentality comes first and it has a, a bigger impact on the physical aspect to the body. So that's why when people try to fake, uh, you know, like fake relics, or like, you know, try to fix <laughs> something that is very divine. So, um, like often they will fail because it's not genuine, right? So um, this is my interpretation, how these um, extraordinaries would be possible under the lens of Yogacara Buddhism. Also, I want to also um, introduce the idea of um, intention and seeds, you know, in um Buddhist um, philosophy, like especially in Yogacara philosophy, um, the idea of a seat, um, like um, the seat is very important. Um, they said, whenever we have uh, we have certain intention, like intention to eat something, like the attention to do something, we will plant a little seat inside our alaya vignana, and then these seeds. When, um, when they are under right nourishment of supporting costs, like for, like, for time, like, like other conditions like time or other factors, and these seeds will grow. And th- when the timing is right, some certain karmic fruits will ap- appear, will bear. So we can also say that um, 
and the, the intention of these master, like um, those those who achieved rainbow body, who achieved um, living behind Sharira, um, their cultivation, um, their cultivation, which is the intention, right? Uh, leave behind some seeds, and those seeds um, are contained inside the the mental part, um, the 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 alaya vignana, the uh, consciousness inside them, or we could say inside us. And then under the certain um, nourishment and timing, and these seeds grow and manifested in their physical body, right? So, so mm. we can. We, so this is how um these um shariras and maybe rainbow body phenomena can be explained by the seeds and the fruits. Okay, so um uh, I will try to conclude that. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Do you guys have any, any questions so far? No, or do you guys have um, any thoughts? Yeah, <laughs> I really agree with your claim because I feel like um, all these Buddhist relics or phenomenon they seem to be proving that there is more than material, our materialistic world. There is something mm. more to it, and it's only that. Um, we are now very focused on um, like scientific evidence and everything that the people don't really take these into account. Yeah. What about Chelsea? Do you have any thoughts or questions? Yes, I was also thinking like the the, the plantation of the seed and the man the physical manifestation that you mentioned it's mm. i think it really fits in like the the form of relics produced by those um saints or buddhist yeah. teachers monks mm. i mean like um throughout their whole life maybe they have reached a certain cultivation in order for them to be cremated under a uh, a high valuable like process so yeah i think mm. i think it, it it kind of fits in your your theory about yeah about that too yeah and also i want to um add on is that like if we see this phenomena as as very extraordinary like um then, then we tend to believe they're not possible and then if we mm. tend to believe they're not possible it leaves behind. Uh, it leaves behind an impression, like inside, like our um, like Alaya consciousness, the, the store storehouse consciousness. That is not impossible. It is an intention, right? It is an impression. So this seeds will will leave behind, and then it will it will it will lead to the results that um, and then it truly is not possible because the more mm -hmm. people believe it is not possible, right? So it yeah. is a perpetual, um, perpetual cause. Yeah. Okay. Mm. So, um, but however, I think um, I want to conclude that if all these um, extraordinary phenomena are proven authentic, like without um, artificial like in interference, so and they are surely uh, will serve as a symbol for the followers to grow in confidence. But I think one thing should be stressed about these um, physical aspect of the of our um, bodies and about death is that I think in the Buddhist point of view, these manifestations are not to be taken 
with a considerable significance. Because why?、Mm. The, because there are only、um, a, a appearance. There are also within the domain of karma, and what、um, lives inside the domain of karma, like it's not ultimately real. Just like my thesis statement stated, the 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 death of the body are not ultimately real. So of course, these、um, you know relic. We think、um, these relic and these phenomena bear some kind of a divinity,、uh, along with these、uh, the nature of this kind of. Things so we think they should be、uh, very valuable, and we should that we should think、uh, they are some kind of a goal we should、uh, chase after. We should try to attain this kind of results. But however, I think under the proper、um, Buddhist、um, philosophy, they are not to be taken as, as some sort of a goal to the, for people to desire to attain to. They are、mm. they are only an appearance because the whole、mm. Buddhist practice, their methodology and their goal and they are aiming towards something that goes beyond karma, that beyond life and death, and whatever、um, exists, it is produced by karma, right? So it is not to be taken like very,、uh, you know, with a very extreme significance, like a lot of. A lot of believer and、uh, disciples they will do because it's something that remained after their、um, teacher and their guru died. So of course they will have some sort of a mental attachment to the to this kind of phenomenon and relics. But、mm. I think this should be stressed because when we attach to this kind of a relic and phenomena, the 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 action and the notion itself will actually increase. The difficulties for us to go beyond karma and go beyond、um, physical and、um, the appearance and the the condition side of things, because、um, what we should be paying attention to is actually、uh, beyond words, right? Like what、mm. is true cannot be ethical. This is also、uh, stressed in the、um, Yogacara philosophy as well. So、uh, mm-hmm. we can see these phenomena as a form of encouragement. It's an encouragement, but and they are definitely possible, and they are definitely real, if、uh, proven、uh, authentic without any interference. So, but they are not the kind of goal one should be desired to achieve. All right.、Mm-hmm. So,、uh, I will conclude、yes. like this. Do you guys have any questions about my、um, presentation about my topic, or do you guys have anything that you guys want to add、uh, regarding to your topic?、Mm. Great conclusion. I really like Thank it. Thank you. <laughs> 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 yeah, I think the notion of、um, physical and the material side of thing. I think this paradigm is about to shift. Because、mm-hmm. there is so much, there is so much evidence and cases like the, those near death experience we we discuss、um, in the class, like that those out of body experience. They must proven like our mind and consciousness are are not stored, like are not definitely not found, like not located inside the body because it can still operate outside the body, right? So I think、mm-hmm. we're going through. A、yes. very great, great paradigm shift, like from、mm. a material 
like at least a material centric point of view to maybe somewhat a mind or a conscious uh, based point mm. of view. Yeah. Mm, definitely. <laughs> right. Mm. All right. Mm. So I think this right. is it. Thank you guys for listening. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so right. so of all, yeah, of all, all right. uh, topics that we have discussed today how do you guys see the endless cycle of rebirth and death beyond dukkha oof that's a million dollar question right there <laughs> <laughs> well i think um that's where that's where where relig- religion are very helpful and very practical like we can discuss all these um, extraordinary phenomena and uh, philosophy all day long. But in the end, like what we all have to face is our daily life, right? Like mm-hmm, we all mm-hmm. have to face our uh, daily emotions, like like whatever happens in our life. I think yes, to me, yes. that's, that's where cultivation happens. It's not that we have to go to some uh, certain temple or certain retreat to, to cultivate enlightenment. No, <laughs> we cultivate uh, enlightenment through our daily life. And because like through, throughout our daily life, our daily routine, we will face a lot of challenge. Like our mind, like are always fluctuated by all these um, men, like um, external events and disturbance so like maybe we could try to find a a, a sense of a tranquility and um a peace like like unchanging core the unchanging um supreme intrinsic nature uh within us to face this uh, ever-changing um karma i think that's also mm. um a lot what a lot of religion are trying to stress about yeah Yes. Mm. Yeah, that's just my view. Yeah. Mm. What about Debbie? Do you have any thoughts about it? Mm. I think this uh, um, basically sums up my my point of view. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Ch- Chelsea? Yeah. Yeah, I I kind of agree with um what you say. It's 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 everyday life. I mean. Mm if we follow your your concept of um everything it's going to be stored in a storehouse it's going to be every everything it's going to be linked together at the end yeah so it's how we cultivate ourselves throughout the life throughout the daily life and how we struggle through the daily um challenge yeah so maybe we should wrap up here Yep. yep We should wrap. Up. Yeah. Okay. okay. All right. <laughs> Thanks Thank you. for all your sharing. Thank you.